You may be seated. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? It was good. Um, before we dive into this, I was thinking about something I, I saw somebody quote, that uh, only in America do we one day, uh, we, we basically trample each other in stores uh, for a sale one day after being thankful for everything we already have, right? <laughs> so when I saw that quote, I thought, that, that is so true. So, so I don't know how many of you were trampling over people to get sales. Uh, hopefully none of you, but um, it's sort of a strange thing, isn't it? One day we're thankful for everything. The next day uh, we're uh, hurting one another to get what we want. Uh, at a good price, at, so they tell us, so they tell us. Um, well, I thought it would be good this morning to, to not leave the Thanksgiving theme, and just to take a moment uh, and remind ourselves this morning of why it is that we ought to be a people, as Paul would show us, a people characterized by Thanksgiving. And uh, I thought maybe the best way to do that is just to, first of all, start with a little bit of history. So just bear with me for a second. This is a very inadequate little history part here, but just a little history. So in 1620, when uh, the, the colonists uh, landed in the mouth of the, of the Hudson River, uh, farther north than what they had expected on the, the ship, the Mayflower, uh, some of you who've been in school in this section of your history recently, maybe you've studied this, uh, they, they came to be known as the Pilgrims, and they landed in the mouth of the Hudson further north than what they had expected, and, and it actually uh, uh, was devastating to them because that first winter that they faced uh, was, was brutal. Uh, there was 102 uh, people on board the Mayflower, and nearly half of them died in that first year. They, they landed uh, where it was cold. They, they remained, most of them, on the ship. They died of scurvy and disease and all kinds of things that came up. And so nearly half of them died. And so as soon as the, the winter let up, they went ashore, all of them on shore, and they, they made friends immediately. They made some friends. The Wapanog Indians uh, were there, and they made friends with them. And those natives helped teach them how to survive. Uh, they taught them things in that area, how to hunt, how to fish, uh, and maybe important, more importantly, how to farm, and how to raise corn. And uh, in fact, uh, the, quote, first Thanksgiving that was celebrated, as it's been come to known as the first Thanksgiving, uh, didn't really probably have any turkey. We were talking about that this morning. It most likely had things like lobster. We know it had venison, had deer. Uh, and several other things, but that I, I, we, were, we were talking that I would give up turkey if we had lobster for Thanksgiving. I'm, I am good with that, right? So it sounds like a pretty good feast to me. Um, but nonetheless, the reason why in 1621, William Bradford, the first elected governor of these, these colonists, the reason why he declared a day of Thanksgiving and a day of celebrating and feasting was in response to their first corn crop that happened to come to do very well. And so it was in response to the abundance of this crop that they had brought in of corn. And they, they decided that they would declare a day of celebrating, not only to be thankful for the abundance of the crop, but to also thank their friends, the Wampanoag Indians, who had helped them and taught them uh, how to survive and to, to, to raise that corn 
so that they could live. And so they, that's why they gathered up. It's recorded about 90-some of their friends, and most of the, which would have been the Wapanog Indians, as well as the 53 remaining um, colonists. Uh, and they celebrate. Now think about this. A year that these people would have had. There's nearly no one that was on the Mayflower who would have not had to bury one of their loved ones or more than one. A child, a husband, a wife. Um, the suffering that they went through in that first year and yet a year later, here they were with their friends gathering around in response to the abundance of the harvest that they had brought in and here they are declaring, let us have a moment to give thanks to our God for his provisions in our life. And so that's exactly what they did. They gave thanks. Listen to these words of William Bradford that he spoke in response to all that God had done. He says this, May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say that our fathers were Englishmen which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this land, but they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice. He looked on their adversity, and he delivered them. Let them therefore praise the Lord, because he is good, and his mercies endure forever. Yea, let them which has redeemed, been redeemed of the Lord show how he has delivered them, how when we wandered out of our way and found no city to dwell in, both hungry and thirsty, how our souls were overwhelmed within us. But let them confess before the Lord of his loving kindness and the wonderful works that he has done before the sons of men. Those are powerful words in the midst of deep suffering and yet rich mercy from God in providing for all their needs. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. Since that day, there were many more Thanksgiving celebrations that were celebrated um, in various ways. In fact, those colonists were not done suffering because two years later, after this moment, they went through an incredible drought that nearly that killed some of them again. It was, it was unreal. But it wasn't until 1863, just to give you one more tidbit of history, it wasn't until 1863, in the midst of the Civil War, uh, in which Abraham Lincoln, uh, at the, this was four days or so after the, Gettys, the, the Battle of Gettysburg, Abraham Lincoln, uh, at the very persistent urging of one uh, Sarah Josepha Hale, who wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb. There's a little, uh, little history tidbit for free. Uh, and uh, she was urging him, and at, at her urging, uh, he declared in 1863, a national day of Thanksgiving in November. And it has been celebrated ever since. Did I get those details right, some of you history teachers out there? So we have been selling your, celebrating it in some form every, ever since that day, a day to celebrate uh, the goodness of God in reality is the way it was started. Now, let me just think about, let's think about this for a minute. Now, I know we don't set up those types of days in order for us to only be thankful for a day, right? A day, in fact, seems fairly in inadequate. One day to be thankful seems pretty inadequate. But we know that those things are, are those moments are reminders. In fact, in our Christian heritage, we have many such reminders, one of which is coming up called Christmas, in which we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. God has, is with us, Emmanuel, right? 
And so these are important things. But the reality is the Apostle Paul would show us in the book of Colossians and in many of his letters, but certainly in the book of Colossians, that the whole attitude constantly and consistently of a Christian ought to be one of thanksgiving. That it should permeate everything we do. It should be, it should be the very attitude, the very behavior, the very way in which we think, the way in which we behave ought to be from an attitude of thanksgiving. Think about this. If the first Thanksgiving was in response to the abundance of God providing for the physical needs of these colonists, and they decided to share and to be thankful for what they had, these physical needs, how much more ought we as Christians thank God continually, constantly, for the spiritual provisions of our lives that have been provided for us in the gift of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, right? It should be overwhelming to us. Think about this for a moment. The scriptures declare in Romans 3, after a very dismal picture of the human race, Paul says, he ends it by saying, for we all have sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God in 3.23. In Ephesians 2, he says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to live. In that same text, he says, and because of our sinfulness, because of our deadness, he says that we were by nature, notice he says by nature, objects of God's wrath. It wasn't simply that you and I sin. The Bible says we are sinners to the very core of who we are. It's our nature. And so therefore, as sinners in rebellion to a perfect holy God, the Bible says that we were by nature objects of God's wrath. And therefore, only deserving judgment and condemnation from a holy, righteous, and just God. But listen, for those of us in Christ, and because of Christ, instead of judgment and condemnation, we receive what we do not deserve. We've been shown mercy. We've been shown grace. And this is why our attitude should be one of continual thanksgiving. Let me explain further. The Apostle Paul shows us in this letter written to the Colossians, he shows us at every part of this letter that he writes, he shows us how thanksgiving ought to permeate everything. Every aspect of the Christian life should be characterized and permeated with thanksgiving. He's never met these Christians. He's writing to them because the, there is a, a devastating belief and doctrine that's creeping into the church that's stealing away and, and, and actually uh, going to thwart the purposes of the gospel. They are, there's a belief that it's not only that we need to believe in Jesus, but it was Jesus plus stuff. It's called the Jesus plus program, right? And, uh, and uh, I think I mentioned it the other night with the, the men when we were at our Vine Project study, and, and that, that uh, Jesus plus something equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And this is what Paul is writing these Colossians to put to death this Jesus Plus program that was going on in the church. And in this, he permeates his whole letter with thanksgiving to who? Completely to God, showing that it is only God and it is only through his son that we have life, that we have mercy, that we've received such incredible grace. And so let's just look for a moment. Let's do a survey of this letter. 
many times he talks about this. He begins the letter in chapter 1, verse 3, with thanksgiving. He says, we always thank God. Notice how we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He's talking to these Colossians, whom he's never met, by the way. But they're brothers and sisters nonetheless. And he says, we always thank God. So when he's praying for them, he prays for them with thanksgiving on his, on his mind to who? To God. And why does he do that? He goes on to say, because of their faith in Christ, their love for the saints, and their hope that is laid up in heaven. Past, present, future. That they've been saved. That their current attitude and actions, they have a love for Jesus' church, for the saints, and they have a hope that is laid up for the future one day. And, and so he's praising God as he prays for them because of what God has done in their lives. He's not building them up in one sense. He's building, he's giving praise to God for what God has done to build them up, right? And so this is how Paul prays for them. Down in verse 12, when he actually prays for them, or down in, yeah, in verse 12, verses 9 to 13, he, we see, or 14, we see his prayer for the Colossians. And in that prayer, he goes through this whole thing. He says, I want you to be, to be bearing fruit, I want you to be uh, strengthened, or actually, I want you to increase your knowledge of God. I want you to be strengthened in all power. And then thirdly, or fourthly, he says, and I want you to give thanks to the Father. And why? This is a beautiful way to pray for one another. Give thanks to the Father. Why? Because he has qualified you. That means you were disqualified. He's saying to the, you were disqualified but now, because of the Father and His sending His Son, you have been qualified, you've been made qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So you had no inheritance, you were not a people, you were not a child of God, you were wandering around aimlessly in the world without God, but God has made you, he's saying, praying for these Colossians. God has qualified you, and, and because he has qualified you, you now have a share in an inheritance. You are now a, an adopted child of God and giving the rights of a firstborn son and set to inherit everything the Father has. Isn't that beautiful? And so he says we should be continually giving thanks to God because he's qualified us, but he doesn't stop there. He's also delivered us, he says, from darkness. He's delivered us. In other words, we were enslaved. We were in one kingdom. That kingdom was a kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And God, through his son, has delivered us from that darkness. And therefore, he's thirdly transferred us into the kingdom of his son. So, we've been, so he says we should give thanks to God because he's qualified you, he's delivered you, and he's transferred you into a whole new kingdom. You have a new address, a new identity. And we're going to find in our text once we land there in chapter 2, that identity is in Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 15, that Pastor Nick has been preaching on these passages. Look at, look at 3, verse 15. He says, and let the peace of Christ, in 3.15, rule in your hearts, as indeed you've been called into one body. And then what does he say? And be thankful. Verse, verse 16. He says, and let the, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does he say we should do this with? With thanksgiving. 
giving in your hearts to God. The attitude that should characterize the teaching, the admonishing, the singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is an attitude of thanksgiving to God. That's the attitude. Look at verse 17. He says it again. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him in everything. Give thanks. This should be the attitude. And then he, as if to close off the whole letter in chapter 4, verse 2, he says again, and, it's like the bookend, he started with prayer, he ends with prayer. He says, and be continue, or what does it say here? Got to get it right. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, and what should be the attitude that characterizes that prayer and that watchfulness? Thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. So, Paul's saying here that every single thing we do in the Christian life ought to be characterized by an attitude of thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God, the Father, because of his Son and through his Son, Jesus. Let me ask you here this morning, is your life characterized by thanksgiving? Are you a thankful person? Let me, let me say it even more pointed. Uh, the people who know you best your spouse, your children, your grandparents, your relatives, would they say that your life is characterized by thanksgiving? Are you a thankful person? Would people see that in you, that you're a thankful person? Why do you think that would matter so much? Why, why does it matter? In fact, what, let me put it even more pointed. Why is it so dangerous to not be a thankful person? What is so dangerous about having a heart of ingratitude? Having a heart that's not thankful? Let me just give you a couple characteristics of ingratitude or lacking thankfulness. The first one is an attitude of entitlement. Ingratitude has an attitude, <laughs> that just rhymed, right? Ingratitude has an attitude of entitlement. There's a lot of T's right there, right? Entitlement simply says, I deserve this or I am owed this. The world and everybody and even more serious, even God owes me. He's indebted to me. God owes me a good life. God owes me a pain-free life. He owes me a plush, happy, cushy life. God, everybody and everything, including God, is in my debt. In fact, uh, ingratitude comes with it a, a sense of a lack of faith in God whatsoever. It's a, it, it, well, another one you could put up there, what's well, not, it's in your bulletin. Another one you could add to it that goes under this entitlement is simply a discontentment with the provisions of God. Ingratitude or a lack of thankfulness reveals in us that we're not content with what God has provided for us. We don't fully understand it, and we, in fact, are not satisfied in Him alone. It also comes with an attitude or a root, it would be self-reliance. This is a very dangerous thing and a very American thing, to be self-reliant. It sounds very good, right, when you're teaching your kids such things. You know, like you need to stand on your own two feet and you need to pull yourself up. You need to do these things. But do you realize how anti-gospel that can be? That, that self-reliance is a dangerous thing because it's self-reliance at the end of the day says, look at what I've done. There's a warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
in which the Israelites, right before they're getting ready to go into the promised land, God gives them this warning, and he says to them, when you get into the land, and you settle down, and you build houses, and you plant vineyards, and you have families, he says, remember the Lord your God. In fact, he says it this way. He says, do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do not forget. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and when you get to to the, to the point of building homes and planting vineyards and having families, do not say to yourself, it is by my hands and it is by the strength of my might that I have done all of this. God's saying that self-reliance is a dangerous thing. He goes on to say, remember that it is the Lord God who gives you the ability to work. It is the Lord God that gives you the ability to do this or to do that or to, to earn this kind of money, to have this kind of job, to, to, to be healthy enough to do whatever it is that God puts your hands to do. It is God who gives us this ability. And, and Moses is warning the people, be careful that you don't become self-reliant when things go well. Are we not in danger of self-reliance? Saying, look at what we have done. It is an attitude of ingratitude that leads to such things. Lastly, arrogance is another characteristic of being, not being thankful. Arrogance simply says, it's all about me. I, I, I simply become puffed up, in fact, with presumption. I presume upon God. I presume upon his will. I presume that I know it. I know what God is, is doing. I know what I want, and God surely wants what I want. And it begins to put yourself at the center of the universe when in reality it's God. And one of the results of an attitude of ingratitude is grumbling and complaining. One of the, one of the great results, if you want to know in your own heart whether or not you are ungrateful, just look at your attitude and see if you're a grumbler and a complainer. <laughs> now that's a little challenging, isn't it? <laughs> My wife and I were laughing about this as I was driving up to Tacoma to speak the other night at a Thanksgiving service, and uh, the traffic was awful. And uh, I'm from South Dakota, right, so we don't have this kind of thing, and I'm trying to get used to it, but it's really annoying, <laughs> all right? Just be honest. And I'm driving up there, and my wife has to actually say to me, so are you being thankful at this moment? <laughs> She had the, she's not in here, so we can talk about this, right? She's in the nursery today. And, uh, you know, and so we were having this conversation about my ingratitude at that moment because we were, we were going to be late, possibly, for me to speak at this thing. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, it, it, yeah, I was grumbling and complaining, right? Not being thankful, the fact that I have a car <laughs> and I can actually drive up there and they'll wait for me anyway, right? I, I think, maybe, maybe not. If not, I guess it's all right. <laughs> so, but grumbling and complaining, just, just a note, there is no spiritual gift of grumbling and complaining. It is, in fact, the Apostle Paul, he says this in, in Philippians. Remember, he says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. And why would he say that? Why would he have to say that? Well, we know why, because we tend to be grumblers and complainers. And, and he's saying that because it is anti-gospel. It reveals in us a lack of gratitude and thankfulness to God 
In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, he says that in everything, he says, be thankful. And he says, so in every circumstance, actually, he uses the word circumstance. In every circumstance, be thankful. And he says this so powerfully. He says, for this is the will of God. That you be thankful in everything, even in the traffic on the I-5, right? We're to be thankful, right? Because in that moment, I'm to be reminded that I have Jesus. I have life, right? And so, let's just take a moment this morning and look at why we've already given some reasons. But let's look a little more closely at why we should be so thankful. The Apostle Paul in 2 verse 6 he says that we should not only be thankful, but he uses the words here abounding, or in your NIV it says overflowing with thanksgiving. Uh, and we'll talk about that image here in just a moment. But he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, therefore, so usually when he says therefore, we should look at what's right before it to see why it's, what it's there for. And he says, it's <laughs> English, right? So, so he, says, he says right before that, he declares his his commitment and his struggle on their behalf for the sake of the gospel. And the struggle that Paul's referring to more so is for the, the mystery of the gospel that has been hidden for ages past. He says, it's now been made known to us. And he's talking about, I have become a steward of this gospel. I've become someone who's been entrusted with proclaiming and declaring this gospel. And he says, I'm doing it. In this instance, he's doing it because he's contending for this gospel with these people because there's a false gospel that's being proclaimed. And he's contending and struggling and toiling and giving his life. It is not easy. And he's saying to them, this is my commitment. This is, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, he says, in fact, of how great a struggle I have for you. 2 verse 1. And then he says, so in light of this, this commitment that he has to them, he says, therefore... Here's, a, here's an exhortation that he's going to give them, a charge. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's a couple things that I think is worthy of, noteworthy about this. He, first of all, the words as and so. On the one hand, he's simply saying here there's a cause and there's effect. That for the person that has received Christ, so you ought also, it, it, it ought to have an effect on the way you walk in your life. It changes you. It can't help but change you. The living God dwells in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. God, the creator of all things and maker of heaven and earth, the one who sustains everything by the power of his word, this God lives in us who believe. And so he's saying that as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It should impact how you walk. Now, now let me just pause for a moment and note, who is it that we have received? Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, Paul's just spent beautifully in 1 verses 15 to 20, one of the most beautiful places in Scripture where you will see an incredible description of Christ and who he is. So if you want to go this afternoon and read 1 15 to 20, an unbelievable picture of who Jesus is in all of his beauty, in every aspect of Christ, 
and what he has done and who he is. And so here he's saying, he's not doing this uh, just randomly. He's saying that we have received Christ, which is the word for Messiah, anointed one, which has a backstory to it. It's saying that this is the one that's been promised all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the, the promised one, the Messiah, the one that all the Old Testament saints looked forward to, who is now here. It is this Jesus, it is this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one whom you have received. And he's Christ, and then it says Jesus, which is the word, the, the Greek word from the Hebrew word Joshua, which means that Yahweh saves, God saves. He's the deliverer, he's the savior. So you have, this is the one you've believed in is the anointed one that's been promised for ages past. He is the deliverer, the one who's come to deliver you from sin and death and darkness. And he is the Lord, meaning he is the sovereign one. He's the ruler. He's the master. You think of the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. This is whom you have received, Paul says. As you received who? Christ Jesus the Lord. And when you receive Christ, when, when God works in you, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and you receive Christ, you receive him as Christ Jesus the Lord. He is the, the ruler, the sovereign one over everything, including your life, including your salvation. And this is good news. And so he says, as you have received him, so walk in him. In other words, there's an initial act of receiving and there's a subsequent process that follows in your life that unfolds. In fact, that process Pastor Nick has been talking about for the last few weeks, it's the process that follows of putting on in chapter 3 and taking off. Taking off the old sin, taking off sin, putting that stuff off, I should say, putting, and putting on the new life in Christ, right? And the, and the characteristics that come with that. And so, but I want us to see here, I think what Paul's saying, and I was reading many commentators, and they were all debating as to whether this is true, but I think it's very true. He's not only saying to, okay, you're a Christian, so now act like one. He's saying more than that. He's saying, as you received Christ, so walk in him. In other words, in the same way that you received him, that's also the same way that you walk in him. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, of those Christians who were struggling with a very similar struggle in their church as, as the Colossians, Paul says that, how is it, he says, that you were saved by the work of the Spirit, but now you think that you are sanctified or that you mature in your faith by works of the flesh? In other words, what Paul's saying is that the same way you're saved, which is by, by grace through the work of the Spirit, is also the same way that you walk in him. It's the same way that you grow and mature. It's not somehow now we're, we're, we're Christians who've received Christ, and now we need to work hard to be good Christians. You will fail at that. I guarantee it. I've tried it, and I've failed miserably at being a good Christian in Chris Gorman's strength, and you will too. You need the same grace and the same work of the Spirit that saved you to also be the same grace and the same work of the Spirit that sanctifies and matures and enables you to put off the old self and to put on the new self day by day by day. You cannot do this in the flesh. And so the question will be, how have you received Christ Jesus the Lord? And the answer is, we all have uh, 
stories and ways in which we could tell that, but there's one thing that's absolutely true of every one of us. The only way you receive Christ Jesus as Lord is by grace. It is only by grace. The unmerited favor and work of God. It's the power of his spirit that works in us. Let me just digress for a moment to Romans 3. Right after he gives the bad news of how wretched we are, (laughs) Paul always gives the good news, right? Right? We need good news, right? But you can't, the good news is not good unless you read the whole chapter of 3. Unless you realize what a pathetic state you are in before a righteous and holy God, you will not come to appreciate his saving work in Christ. And so what does he say in verse 24 of chapter 3? He says, we are justified. That is, the word justified means we are made right with God. We're not right with God in the first part of chapter 3. But we become right with God. We're justified. How? By his grace, Paul says. And how does that grace work? He says, as a propitiation by his blood. Now, I know that's a word you use every day, right? Propitiation. But did you know, you can talk to people around the break room tomorrow, like, did you know what propitiation is? That's if I explain it well enough for you. I think Pastor Nick's done that several times for you. But listen, propitiation is a crucial word. It is the only English word that truly captures in this spot what the Greek is trying to convey. There is no other word. We don't have words sometimes to actually convey in our language what another language is trying to say. And it's really the only word that fully captures it. And that's why I think rightly many translations have kept it in there. Other translations uh, have used the word substitute, which is only half of the truth. It, it, It isn't untrue. So they'll say, as a substitution in our place by his blood, right? He's been substituted. He did die a death that I should have died. Jesus was a substitute in my place. But that's not, that's not the whole truth. Not only did he die in my place as a substitute, but the word propitiation means that in dying in my place, he actually absorbed in his own body and took upon himself the very sins that I had committed, and he appeased the wrath of God on my behalf. And so what that means is, he who knew no sin, there's a song about that, right? He who knew no sin, Paul says, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus died as if he was a liar and a cheater and an adulterer. He died as if he was some angry fool, even though he had never done any of those things. He took upon himself your sins and my sins, and in doing so, he paid the debt, the penalty that you and I owe because of our sinful rebellion against God. And so, therefore, propitiation has the sense not only did he die in your place, but because of what he did, he turns away the wrath of God away from you so that you will never, ever, as a believer in Jesus Christ, ever experience God's wrath. Not one second of your day will you ever experience the punishment and the wrath of God against your sin. Why? Because Jesus has already taken it upon himself, he's already experienced it and absorbed it in himself. 
and this happened on your behalf, and you weren't even asked, right? Jesus didn't come and say, is it okay if I die for you, Andrew? Is it all right if I do that? No. He did it willingly. And it says that this great gift is received by faith in Romans 3.26. It's interesting. This word in, back in our Colossians text, received, Christ Jesus Lord, is a passive action. In other words, it is only in response to what someone else has done already on your behalf. It's not something that you did, or it wouldn't be grace. You could pat yourselves on the back this morning. We could be singing songs saying, you know, I, we could change all the, I don't know, I won't even try to make that up, but we'd, we'd be have to sing different songs, right? Amazing grace would not be so amazing if it were not truly grace. And so we, we, we receive this grift, it is, a, it is received by grace. It is something that God has done. As John chapter 6 says, that only Jesus himself said, only those who, whom the Father draws to me. He says, no one comes to me except those whom the Father draws, and everyone whom the Father draws I will raise up on the last day. You don't get any more assurance than that. And I love in John chapter 10 where he says the same words and he says, no one can snatch them out of my hands. And then Jesus ups the ante one more and he says, and the father who is even greater than I, no one can snatch them out of his hands either. Why? Because you were saved by grace. It is the work of God. The scriptures tell us that, that he who began the good work, who was the one who began the good work? You? Me? No. It was God who began the good work. It says, he who began this good work, he will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. Or look at Hebrews where it says, Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith. Isn't that incredible? It's grace from start to finish. And this is what Paul's trying to say. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By grace, through faith, and so walk in him. It's by great, the walk that you live right now, the putting on and the putting off is a work of grace. It is the work of the Spirit in your life. And so then he gives some subsequent uh, characteristics here. By the way, this is why Jesus is so precious to us, right? This is why we sing and give him praise and why we ought to be thankful. He says here, let me just give you these quickly, these metaphors that he uses. Walking in him. Walking is a typical biblical term for the Christian life. We're walking. Notice it's not a marathon. It's not, it's not, a, not a sprint. It's, not, it, it's, it's a walk. It's consistent daily as we walk in him. Notice the emphasis here. The emphatic, in fact, in the Greek, what it's called the emphatic, the emphasis is on in him. Our identity is in Christ. And so we are walking in him. It says we are rooted in him, which has the picture of tree with roots. You can go to Psalm chapter 1 and read about that, that, that he's, he's picturing the Christian life as a, as a tree that has deep roots, that, that gets its nourishment from the soil. We get our nourishment from God's word. Our roots go deep. In fact, in this passage, he says we need to increase in our knowledge of God. 
right? We need, to, we need our roots need to be continually growing deeper into the Word of God, further into Christ. Uh, he says here that we're to be built up in Him, which has the idea of a building, which is another picture in Scripture. The building has a foundation. He says, in fact, he puts these two things together, built up in Him, established in the faith. There needs to be a solid foundation of which our lives are built on. What is the foundation? It's in Him. It's in Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians 3 for that. Um, one, one commentator said this. He said, Christian progress is not growing up from Christ as a starting point. But it's growing into Christ as a goal. Christ is not somehow the starting point that I receive him and then I move on to stuff. No, no, no. Christian growth, putting on and putting off this daily living in Christ is a, in which is a life in which I press more and more and more deeply into Christ. He is the goal. He's the beginning and the end, right, of everything, including your faith. And then lastly, we see what characterizes all of this, abounding in thanksgiving. Why should you be thankful? Need I say more? Right? This is a work of grace in your life. We abound in thanksgiving. The picture here is of a river that's overflowing its banks. That's why the NIV, I think, uses the word overflowing, which is probably an accurate way of saying it. It's, it's this river that, that it cannot be, the banks of the river cannot contain it. The grace of God in your life as you press further into Christ ought to overflow in your life. This, this thanksgiving ought to well up and your whole, you cannot contain it to where it spills out of your life. It abounds, it overflows in your life. And therefore, people ought to see in us, right? They ought to see the effects. They should be able to smell Christ in us, right? They should be able to know that, that, that we've been saved by grace because of our, our demeanor. And I want you to notice one little thing in here. He says, these things all happen just as you were taught. Paul and the early church was not simply about making converts. That may sound strange. Paul was not simply about simply getting people to simply believe in Christ. They actually did what's called the Great Commission. Every person who came to trust in Jesus Christ through the power of his spirit and the work of grace, everyone was taught to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And Paul's showing us here. These things that he's telling them are not strange things. They've already been taught this. This is how you've been taught to live. You've been saved by grace. You're supposed to live by grace in this Christian life. This is what we've taught you, Paul's saying. This is, this is the normal way of the Christian life. We should, we should be rooted, walking in him, rooted in him, built up in him. It's all about Christ in our lives. And so let me just close this morning by giving us a new set of characteristics, a characteristics of an actual of gratitude. What happens or what is going on in a person's life when we are truly thankful for all that Christ has done. Well, first characteristic is that of faith. It's that of faith. This sounds maybe simple, maybe obvious, but giving thanks is a way of confessing 
that God is the ultimate source of every single thing in your life. It's a way of acknowledging God in everything, giving thanks to him for what he has done to us. To not be thankful then, as we gave the negative side of it earlier, is to be discontented with God's provisions. It's be, to be discontented with God himself. It's to not believe or live as if God is enough for you. And I don't say this in some vacuum, simple way. There are some of you in this room, you have suffered. You understand what those pilgrims went through to a degree. You have suffered greatly. As I was studying this, a very dear brother in Christ to me, one I would call a son whom I've mentored for a number of years, he, he contacted me, and he had just lost his child. And at just, just a, two days ago, the day before Thanksgiving, and through tears and through prayer, he says to me, Chris, I believe Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love endures forever. He quoted 2 Corinthians. My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. And then I, I, I was just blown away as we have talked and prayed together. So it's not just this simply when things are good, but we believe that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights who doesn't change. But when we say good, we don't mean easy or simple or pain-free. What we mean in that good category is also the bad, the difficult, the horrible, and even the worst moments of your life that the Bible promises that God will twist and bend and turn into your good and his glory. And that is really good news. Any of us can praise God when everything is good, right? Everything is perfect and we're comfortable. We're sitting in a warm house. All is well. But man, when the wheels come off, that's when it gets tested out. And, and when we have a disposition of thanksgiving to God, recognizing all comes from him, we, it's a sign that we are trusting him and we give thanks to him, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, in every circumstance, we give him thanks, for this is his will. It's acknowledging that God is at work in my life. Secondly, an attitude or, or gratitude is characterized by humility. Humility is simply realizing that everything is from him. Um, and, and these may seem to run together, but think about this. Not even your own life belongs to you. The Bible says, Paul tells us, that, that your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? So not even our life is ours alone. And when you and I understand that more and more and more, how could we ever be arrogant? This is why Paul gets angry in Romans and, and, and James also, the author of James, says, says all such boasting is, is, is worthless. How could we Who've been, who've been blessed so much by the grace of God, how could we be arrogant? How could we be anything but humble in our demeanor, in our approach? 
And lastly, the person who is thankful is a person who loves. You might wonder what the connection is. But to have a disposition in our lives where everything in our life is characterized by thanksgiving already sets us at a, as to having a disposition that is other-centered. Right? To, to be thankful to God for everything, life and breath and salvation and everything in your life, puts you in your thinking, in your disposition to thinking about others, about God, about others around us, it puts you in a whole different thing. And when I say love, I know some of the guys maybe in the room, some check out, like I used to talk about that mushy, gushy thing, that love, you know. That's not the kind of love the Bible talks about. I mean, there is a type of love like that. Don't, don't get me wrong. You've read the Song of Solomon. But, but the kind of love that is portrayed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ could be defined in one sense. Now, this is, a, this is just one little aspect that's inadequate, but it could be defined this way. True Christian love for others is defined as doing whatever it takes at whatever cost to oneself to give to others around us what will satisfy them, not for five minutes, not for five days, not for 500 days, but for eternity. So for you and I to truly love means that we will give the world Christ. Right? And when you and I are thankful to Christ for what he has done for us, how could we give other people anything else? Right? When our heart and our minds and our actions, when we are exploding, overflowing with thanksgiving, how could we want to give them anything but Christ? And so I pray for us, pray for my own heart as I'm driving down the I-5 this next week. I pray, I pray that we will be a people characterized by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for us in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your son, for this great gift that you have given to us, that he has come and he has died a death in our place, on our behalf, absorbing in his own body the wrath that we deserve. And in doing so, he has canceled the debt that we owed. And not only that, but he took those sins to the grave and they were buried. And three days later, he arose from the grave, conquering and overcoming death and hell on our behalf. And I pray, God, that every one of us in this room, by the power of your spirit, that we would declare our faith in this one, Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, that we would believe in him and what he has done for us, and that in doing so, God, that you, you would cause our hearts to explode with joy, that we would overflow with thanksgiving because of the work that he has already done for us. Would you, even in this moment, draw someone today to yourself, 
by your power, may they today understand that they are sinners, hopeless without Christ, and that only Christ is worthy and sufficient to pay the debt that we owe to a holy God. God, may your spirit work in moving a heart to believe that, and may they respond in faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And may they be thankful. And may all of us join in that thanksgiving to you for what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.